Hey, everybody. You are listening to Close Reads, and I'm David Kern. Now, usually on this show, we would incorporate an ad read and an intro and all that into the show. And we tried to do that three times, but we had a lot of tech issues. So we had to kind of change the way we do this. So I just want to say uh, welcome. Thank you for listening. Uh, on the other side of this, you'll get uh, you'll get uh, Tim and Angelina and a conversation on Chapter 7 of Brideshead Revisited. Before we get to that, though, I do need to say a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast network, you know that the Institute for Excellence in Writing has been sponsoring the network this this uh, June, and we're really grateful that they are doing that. Um, they equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials to aid them in training students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. At IEW, it is their privilege to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. And you can learn more about IEW at IEW.com. You can find their podcast there as well as all their programs, Andrew Poudois' speaking schedule, and much, much more. So uh, thanks so much to, to IEW for sponsoring. They've been really good, reliable friends of ours for a long time, since well before we were doing podcasts or really doing much of anything. They're really uh, crucial in helping Cersei grow and get off the ground a little bit. Um, so thanks so much to them for, for sponsoring this month. And thanks also to Scully Academy for sponsoring. If you have a ninth or a 12th grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar-style gradebooks course while earning two high school credits, then classes with Close Reads contributor Professor Tim McIntosh might be the great option for you from Scully Academy. They're offering four different high school gradebooks courses live online. Uh, if you would like your high school students to have deep engagement with gradebooks and develop a love for the classics under the tutelage of a professor like Tim McIntosh, then visit scolaacademy.com to learn more. He's got four different courses going on, and if you head over to Scully Academy, you can see uh, you can see all the information there. His his mug is there on the on the front page. He says so. Um, so check that out. Uh, so thanks to, to Scully Academy from Classical Academic Press and to IEW for sponsoring. And uh, with that, I guess let's just kick it over to to the conversation today. This is Angelina and Tim and I discussing Chapter Seven from Brideshead Revisited. Thanks as always for listening. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads. As always on Close Reads, I am David Kern and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, we've had some tech problems, but we are here. We are ready to go again. We're going to try this again. Third time's a charm. It's Let's gonna, do it. it. It's going to work. I'm going to cross my fingers and all my toes um, and knock on wood and all that. Um, how's it going, guys? Dynamically. But then again, it was going dynamically before we had all the tech issues. So maybe it shouldn't be going dynamically. <laughs> maybe you should be more lethargic. Yeah, I think I'm going to slip into lethargy right now. Uh, it's going pretty awful. The computer doesn't like us. <laughs> the internet doesn't like yeah, us. Exactly. Censorship. Yeah, some, they didn't like what we were saying, clearly. Someone on the internet didn't like what we were saying. The they just stepped the they right in. shut us shut down. down. <laughs> Boom. Well, David, you said during our previous two attempts that this is one of your favorite chapters yeah, I in did. the book. I did, yeah. Why, do you, why is it one of your favorite chapters in the book, David? Well, well, we're here, you know, we're here to talk about chapter seven, and it's not a very long chapter, which is one of the reasons why it's not my, it's my favorite. <laughs> it's not funny what we're saying. Our listeners are probably like, what? This is the third time. This is the third time, David. Let's get Yeah, right. They're going to think. They're going to think we're all in a room together, like making faces at each other, and that's the reason for us laughing. It's not. It's because we've it's we've hashed this territory now a third time. You know, I it's, have this feeling, David, that you like this chapter. It's really short, but it's not so short. You know, it's funny. I don't want Tim, to put words in your mouth, David. Tim's an actor, so he's always prepared for like the 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 practice, right? 
the the rehearsal. Yeah, the rehearsal exactly. But rehearsing a podcast like this is just odd and weird, and it doesn't feel right. Yes. <laughs> okay, but hold on. Let's do a little like spontaneity is the point of rehearsal. <laughs> when you're rehearsing, you're discovering. You're all, you're true. not like saying the same thing in the same way. You're constantly discovering. Okay, well I'll try. But what Let I think is so interesting is that this chapter is all about this idea of memory and layers of memory and, and you know, recounting things that have happened. And so I feel like this is very appropriate that we're just yeah. going to see. I'm going I'm to recall David's first two attempts at explaining and, this chapter. And if I may, it's also very, very much about performance. There's a lot of oh, performance well, going you on go. here. You've got Rex well performing played. and Julia performing and... Um, it feels like there's a lot of roles being played here, so that that also maybe it is fortuitous that this that this happened. Um, maybe it is, but yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it is <laughs> one of my favorite chapters. Um, it is it is not long, as I've said on the previous <laughs> recordings, but it is also full of just really great prose, the kind of prose that I think you'd put in a commonplace book. Um, and you know, I think it's the most one of the most consistently brilliantly written. Uh, chapters but one of the things that's interesting about it is it goes beyond just you know this is a really good piece of writing but there's a, it's kind of structured in a weird way and we just mentioned this kind of off air and it, it, it's a kind of a weird framework that, that Evelyn Waugh presents here because he gets he gives us Charles recounting Julia's story but he does it in such a way that it's like 10 years later, Julia recounting the story, but then it's him 20 years later recounting what Julia said 10 years after what happened in the chapter happened. Yes, mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you guys make of that? Cause it's not, it's obviously not accidental. Like I don't think that, um, Evelyn wall woke up one morning with a terrible headache and kind of just got himself, you know, all jumbled and didn't want to rewrite it. <laughs> As we know, he was perfectly fine <laughs> with rewriting this book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what do you make of that kind of structural choice that he's making here? It's sort of in the middle of the book. It's right in the middle-ish, towards the point when the book is kind of beginning to shift from a from a Sebastian focus to a Julia focus. Yeah. The rest of the book is very much about Charles and Julia. Um, and so why do you guys think that he chooses to do that here? I love it. I, I love what he's doing with the layers That's not of what I asked you. and the memory. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, what I Just think uh, Mr. Wall is trying to accomplish. <laughs> Stop um, thinking independently and answer the question I'm asking the way I want I it. Already, I already forgot. See, the answer is always C. Yes, Tim. <laughs> Jesus. I'm just going to be like Rex Motrum. Whatever you say, Padre. <laughs> <laughs> and yes to that as well. I I think this idea is fascinating to yeah. me, and, and and I don't I don't think it, you know when I read it when I was in my early twenties I don't think it struck me as interesting as it does now reading it on on <laughs> closer to Charles's. Inevitably, presence. some listeners out there is like, yeah, get on with it. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> but um, just just the idea that our own stories of our own lives are different the way we tell them and think about them at different points in our lives right so you are hearing what julia did when she was an idiot 19 year old but now she's you know 29 or 30 and but charles is almost 40 thinking about the idiot things she did and so you have all these layers of people actually learning from their own experiences that she's able to say oh this is what i was thinking and feeling and i was such an idiot and this is what was happening, and of course that's over now. And 
I, I just think that's fascinating that he's he's I mean, books do that, but often they would do it by tracing one character over their lifetime, right? And right. So you see the slow, and you're with them having the slow recognition of what's true and, mm. and what are our illusions of use and all of that. And we get to the end, and you're like, no, this is really what was going on. Now mm-hmm. we've attained wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me, though, that Wall doesn't drag it out. He's he's compressing it, right? He puts it all in the same moment. In that one moment, mm. you're seeing all these different levels of mm. memory and perspective and wisdom and ignorance and youth and age and i think it's fascinating it, it like br- we're all of those people at the same time yeah it, it brings back into focus the comment that my dad made last week that this is a book about perspective that you always have to be yeah. conscious of it and i love the idea that of Ju- that, we, that what charles is recounting is julia recounting it later so that she has years of perspective on it you know it's not just yeah. his it's not just charles recalling what he experienced uh, in the moment and obviously he wasn't there so, so there is a, you, it lends it a sense of, I don't know, like a, like some credence, like some wisdom to it, right? Like that maybe she learned something. And so that allows her to see it, you know, without rosy colored glasses, so to speak, or rose colored glasses or whatever that thing is we say. <laughs> I think it also makes me much more sympathetic to her having married Rex, hearing the story mm. after she already regrets it. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Tim, do you have anything to add to that? What do you think? I think I like the fact that the narrator who is Charles um, gets close to Julia in recounting her story. So as a reader, I kind of make the switch from this is a story about Sebastian to now I'm going to be near. um, Now I'm going to be near Julia and see what makes her heart beat Mm. because up until like the previous, maybe two or three chapters, the narrator has been so close to Sebastian, even though, Oddly enough, I didn't. I don't feel like we got any bit. We never really got that close to Sebastian. Charles at least wanted to kind of like convey his story, but Sebastian kind of closed the book. And I totally agree with that. That's so. That's so interesting. Yeah, and I think what is interesting about that is that. Okay, so I'm going to bring up something here that's been talked about offline. Um, that the idea that it, you know what is what kind of attraction does Charles have for Sebastian um, and you know Wah has come out and said Wah came, I don't know why I said has come out he came out and said that he did not view um, view Charles and Sebastian as having any kind of like homosexual or romantic relationship or anything Dep- I guess depending on how you view the word romance um, <clears throat> but what is interesting to me is that I believe his attraction to Sebastian is it, he is there's a mystery about Sebastian that he and related to his relationships and his family and this whole history, this whole, the whole Sebastian story, the whole story, the whole aura of Sebastian. And I believe that Charles is enamored with that. Like because he has never had anything like that, because he's never had a relationship, a close relationship with really anybody, it seems. Mm-hmm. And, and that when Sebastian shuts the door on that, when Sebastian closes him off and turns away and basically rejects, uh, maybe that's too harsh a word, but he sort of rejects that Charles, that, you know, that sort of relationship moving forward and that they could be friends anymore. He, he's able to turn his affection, that, that sense of um, longing for some kind of a relationship like that. He turns it towards Julia and ultimately that does become much more romantic. Um, and that's why I think, you know, what was setting up there is attention 
in the relationship between Sebastian and Charles that can be fulfilled more in the relationship with Julia because he has yeah, this desire for point, relationship. David. That's why I think that's why you can, I think you can believe while when he says, Oh, I didn't mean that, you know, that they were homosexual. It's, there's something It's something more complicated going on there. And, and so I think you can believe it when you see the him then turn towards the mystery that is Julia. And that's why this chapter actually begins with the word something like it's time to talk about Julia. Yeah. Who has yeah. been an enigma, right? Right. Yeah. She had, just like Sebastian always was, once Charles gets to know Sebastian, once Sebastian becomes less of a mysterious enigma, he's somehow less attractive to both Charles and to the readers. Like we feel it's so it, true. We're le- it's less about wow, that's it's something attractive. Like that's an attractive guy we want to hang out with more than like somebody you have sympathy for, right? Yeah. And so Yeah, th- I yeah. still feel like I don't know Sebastian. Yeah. Right, right me right. too. I feel the same way. Right. I, I want to ask a question, and we can just leap right over this if you guys don't want to talk about it. But would this, would if Sebastian and Charles did have a homosexual relationship, would that change the book for you? I don't know how to answer that. I don't either because I can't remember the ending of the book. <laughs> oh. So I feel like I don't have enough information to know. I mean, it wouldn't change anything at this point for me, no. I don't, be, I don't know. I don't know how to yeah. answer it. I just don't. I, I. That's like asking if you could read Japanese, what would the book, how would you feel? <laughs> if you're reading in Japanese, how would it be different? I don't know. Like, I can't read <laughs> Japanese. It doesn't, to me, that's like, that's, I just am so far from believing that that's what's happening in this book that I... You can't put on you can't put on a pair of glasses that imagines looking back that that's what was going on that they had a homosexual relationship. I mean, I don't know that it would matter. That I don't know that I would think that much differently of the book. I mean, the the probably especially at this point because to me this the book is still about conversion and it's about like acquiring faith and how that happens that process. And we're not supposed to look at Charles and Sebastian as like, we're not supposed to, it's the, it's the old O'Connor idea of like redemption's meaningless unless there's something to be redeemed from. Right. Yeah. So the, the idea would still stand for me, but I just like, that's, that's how I would, I don't think I'd feel different from that perspective, but as far as looking at these other themes, I just don't think that's what's happening. So the other themes would certainly change a little bit, but, um, but then at the same time, like if he's just shifting his, his affection, whether it's romantic or not from Sebastian to Julia, I mean, it's still there. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. What about you? <laughs> I when I first read it, I thought this they there's something going on romantically between Charles and Sebastian. The mm-hmm. first time I read it, mm-hmm. um, like I said, I think it was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I imagine, but then at some point in the book, it changed. I was like, well, this is just not the primary purpose of the book that's not what this book is about it's not like a, a closeted love story or something like that mm-hmm. so i don't think it would make any difference to me either because the thematic concerns of the book are they, they just steer quickly away from any any potential romance between those two characters yeah that's I mean, a long way of saying no it wouldn't matter to me it is interesting that all of a sudden he's like not really a character anymore. Yeah, I know. He just disappears. I mean, he is a character. He'll show back up, but he's sort of for a while, not a character. He like right now in the story, 
He's not really a he's thing. He's run. No. Well, he yeah. ran. Right. Plot-wise, yeah. he ran away, and right. that's what's happening narrative-wise as well. Right. And even when he was still in the room before he ran, he he kind of disappeared. He was just oh yeah, just an alcoholic. You're like, but you oh, know, that's very well done. But that's mm-hmm. well done. That mm-hmm. isn't that it what is. happens to people in that kind of situation that they're Absolutely. there and they're not there and they're just completely isolated and. Absolutely right. Well, it's like his father. In the lives yeah. of him, like in yeah. his life, you'd imagine. But let's talk a little bit more about Julia then, because chapter seven focuses on her and Rex, their relationship. And I think one thing that's worth talking about is their attraction to each other. Like speaking of attractions, why are Rex and Julia attracted to each other? And I think mm. that's worth thinking about because we get to know each of them quite a bit here and we get to know them with, you know, some distance, as we said. So I, I think that's useful. But let's, Angelina, why don't you read for us um, the first three or four paragraphs of the chapter because this is where we get to know Julia a little bit. Do you want to do that for us? Sure. It is time to speak of Julia, who till now has played an intermittent and somewhat enigmatic part in Sebastian's drama. It was thus she appeared to me at the time, and I to her. We pursued separate aims, which brought us near to one another, but we remained strangers. She told me later that she had made a kind of note of me in her mind, scanning the shelf for a particular book. One will sometimes have one's attention caught by another, take it down, glance at the title page, and saying, I must read that too when I have the time, replace it and continue the search. On my side, the interest was keener, for there was always the physical likeness between brother and sister, which caught repeatedly in different poses under different lights, each time pierced me anew. And as Sebastian and his sharp decline seemed daily to fade and crumble, so much the more did Julia stand out clear and firm. She was thin in those days, flat-chested, leggy. She seemed all limbs and neck, bodiless, spidery. Thus far, she conformed to the fashion, but the haircut and the hats of the period and the blank stare and gape of the period and the clownish dabs of rouge high on the cheekbones could not reduce her to type. When I first met her, she met me in the station yard and drove me home through the twilight that high summer of 1923. She was just 18 and fresh from her first London season. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, yeah. Read this next one. Some said it was the most brilliant season since the war, that things were getting into their stride again. Julia, by right, was at the center of it. There were then remaining perhaps half a dozen London houses which could be called historic Marchmain House in St. James was one of them, and the ball given for Julia, in spite of the ignoble costume of the time, was by all accounts a splendid spectacle. Sebastian went down for it and half-heartedly suggested my coming with him. I refused and came to regret my refusal, for it was the last ball of its kind given there, the last of a splendid series. How could I have known? There seemed time for everything in those days. The world was open to be explored at leisure." I was so full of Oxford that summer. London can wait, I thought. And so right again, we're right back at this idea of the passing away of something, right? Mm-hmm, All yeah. these old traditions are lost. This is the last of the coming out parties. And it, in fact, I thought it was so interesting given some of these ideas we picked up on of enchantment and and something fairy tale and, and mysterious and magical about the March Mains. I thought it was really interesting mm-hmm. on the next page that... Uh, Waugh describes Julia as a fairy tale heroine, and he mm-hmm. uses those words, right? That she's the heroine of a fairy story, turning over in her hands the magic ring. Um, mm-hmm. Talks about the kingfisher and so forth. Yeah, so he he's bringing out those fairy tale motifs a lot in here. Hmm. What do you make of all the architecture references? Because we've talked about that before, but he very purposefully seems to compare Julia to these 
um, buildings, or at least put her put her in within a context of them, right? And he's talking about the, there were still some old buildings, even as they're putting up new buildings and stuff. Why do you think he does that? Like the paragraph after you let off the other great right. houses, he talks about the other great houses that belong to the kinsmen or to childhood friends of Julius, with their music floating out of the plane trees and the pavements and the balconies and so forth. I'm well, going- a wild speculation. Oh, on go this. ahead, mm-hmm. go for it. Um, can you imagine? Um, after the London bombing, how much architecture had been utterly obliterated. I mean, centuries old architecture had been obliterated and now kind of writing forlornly after World War II, all these references to um, architecture would have a real palpable sense of loss to mm. his first readers. I mean, that's a speculation. Obviously, I don't uh, you know. You know, as, like, as Charles or Waugh writing... 25 years after, like, n- not in the 20s exactly. when it's supposed to take place, but writing years right. later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what you're getting at there is the idea that there would be old historic buildings right alongside new things. And and just like today, the new stuff would have been ugly and gauche, and people would have had a hard time with that juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the same way that he's describing Julia, right? Mm-hmm. That she's, she's dressed like a 1920s flapper. And we know, mm-hmm. if you look at pictures, that they all look alike. Mm-hmm. But he's saying she wasn't like them, though. She still stood out. So it's almost like she's an old house in a, in a, in a new exterior. But, but, mm. but, but Julia's not the new woman. I mean, you said um, off air that she's, she's trapped, really, between the old world and the new world. And mm. I think that that's a, a great way to, to, to look at her. And I think that description of her physically, I mean, physically, she looks like the new woman. But there's but but and there are some things about her which are very new woman and forward thinking. Mm-hmm. But there are also some things about her that are very old. And ultimately, this is why she comes to reject and be repulsed by Rex. You know, um, which is that's so interesting because think about the way Father Malbray describes Rex. Right? He says that he that he's all exterior and there's nothing yes. underneath yeah. him. And it's almost yes. like Julie is the opposite. Like she's playing a role on the outside which keeps her, quote, up to date or something like that, however you want to put it. But there's more to her on the, under the exterior, whereas Rex is truly a man of his time. He truly right. is the modern man on the inside and on the outside. He may be, he's putting on a performance to fit in with Lady Marchman, to fit in with the Catholic Church, to, forget in with, to fit in with these old traditions, which he wants to be able to use to his benefit. But under, underneath, he's nothing. So they're almost like the opposite, which might be why Julie ultimately can't stomach him for that long. Right. They're, they're no, not, I think that's true. They're not really she a match. She probably makes the mistake of thinking that he's doing what she's doing, right? That it's, Sure, it's just a, an mm. exterior, but there's probably something real underneath. I mean, that's just speculation. I know that I have made that mistake of projecting that onto people. Um, I'm always attracted to quiet men, and I found out the hard way that not every quiet man is hiding depths <laughs> when he is <laughs> They're not Some all Mr. Darcy. They don't have anything to say. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sometimes it's quiet because, like Mertz Motrum, there's nobody home. <laughs> they're not, so they're more Motrum than Darcy. <laughs> yes, yes. It, I like that you mentioned, though, how it describes her even physically because it does have this kind of like. Uh, um, like industrial vibe the way he kind of the words he uses and stuff like that like all like limbs and necks and like the idea of straight lines and sort of you know oh, it, yeah, it feels yeah. like plans to a to a, a modern building so to speak and if it's you think bl- it's blueprints more than mm, um yeah a description and, and of it's very generic yep yep 
That's true. Yeah, yeah. But he still, you know, some he still is sees something in her. Do you think this chapter gets in to what it is that he sees in her? I, it does. There are various play. I mean, most of the point of view is from is about why she is interested in him. But there are moments kind of sprinkled throughout the chapter about why he likes her so much. And it seems like he likes her because she's a ticket into a type of society that he wants to kind of belong to, even though he has nary a clue about what makes that society that society. You're talking about Rex? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, See, that's the thing about Rex, is that I don't think that Rex is playing a part. I think that Rex just... And there's a... There's a hmm. sincerity about his ignorance, okay? Like mm-hmm. I don't mean this as a defense of him. It's just when when they say, "Well, is he just is he just going through the motions of this uh, becoming a, a convert?" And and they all say, "No, he's dead serious. He's sincere, right?" Yeah. But if you have no interior life, what does that sincerity look like, right? I mean, he sincerely wants to do whatever has to be done. I will say yes to whatever. The Pope's got monkeys in the palace. Yes, I'm yes. in. You know, I'm all in. Rex is all in and he's sincere. So it's not it's Can, almost like for him to be a fraud, there would have to be a different interior Rex. Do you know what I mean? Like where he'd be saying, I'm playing this role, but you're only gonna I'm just gonna fake being a Catholic. You won't be able to get my heart. It's like Rex doesn't have enough of an interior to even fake something. He's just mm. all surface. Hmm. Uh, mm, hmm. David, David, oh, that's... I feel like I'm about to get jumped on, but no, okay. No, I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking. I didn't say interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think he's playing a part. And, like, if you look at the way the conversation with Ma- with uh, Julia, um, when Julia and Mabray are talking about Rex with Lord, with Lady Marchmain, um, he says... Okay, so the priest leaves... Um, he says, Lady Marchman, he doesn't correspond to any degree of paganism known to the missionaries, right? Which is this incredible line of, of Mabre describing, um, describing Rex. And I'm sure we'll have to come back and, and, you know, I know Tim, you love that passage right before that and I'll have to have you read that in a minute. But then Lady Marchman turns to Julia when the priest has gone and she says, Julia, are you sure that Rex isn't doing this thing purely with the idea of pleasing us? And then Julia says, I don't think it enters his head. And then she says, is he really sincere in his conversion? And what's interesting to me here is that I don't know if Julia, to me, it feels like Julia is being evasive because she doesn't answer the question, is he sincere in his conversion? Uh, She says he's determined to become a Catholic mummy. Um, And then she goes on about how, like, I don't suppose all Clovis's army were exactly Catholic minded. One more won't hurt. Um, (laughs) I missed that on the first read. In her in her long hist- in in her long history, the church must have had some pretty queer converts, says Julia. But to me, I don't I don't know that she's she's kind of being evasive. She says, "Is he being sincere and wanting to become Catholic?" And in his in his conversion, she says, "Is he really sincere in his conversion?" Which there's that idea of conversion again. And Julia just says, right. "Well, he's determined to become Catholic," and those are not the same things. And it feels to me like he is choosing to become Catholic because it's advantageous because it's the only way he can marry julia and in particular marry into such that no, family and i agree with that uh, I, maybe I'm, I'm struggling to have the words with what i'm trying to say well, I, I, I agree with I you try, angelina because i'm a, i'm yeah go ahead I, I have your opinion also 
I think that he's utterly severe. I mean, excuse, utterly severe, utterly sincere. And I think that Julia's response. Okay, let me, so, let me, let me stop you there. I, uh, just for yeah. clar clarify definitions. He's sincere about what? That's what I was going to get to next. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Julia what, does not, in order to answer Lady Marchmain's question, he's really sincere in his conversion. For Julia to answer that, she must get Jesuitical over the word sincere. Mm hmm. Rather than do that, she does slightly kind of change the focus of. Man, we're ki we're killing the Jesuits on this show. On this show, we are. <laughs> no, we're just quoting Waugh, Jesuitical. We're just quoting Waugh. I think that she knows that. My opinion is that Julia does think that he's sincere, but sincere for Rex and sincere for Lady Marchmain, these are different. Yes. They are completely yes. different meanings. So, but okay. So let me ask the question again. What is Rex sincere about then? How does it? What does it mean for him? He gets to belong to a religious club. He gets to assent to a series of statements that that other people have assented to. Um, but for him, it is a passage into a club that of like-minded people. But, but you, the, the actual like content behind those convictions. Lady Marchmain, like she believes those things down to the nail, but for Rex, he just thinks that they are like kind of membership words that are relatively meaningless. They're kind of shibboleths that one person says to another to signify I'm on your same team, but they don't have any hmm. actual meaning. Like the dual nature of Christ, this is sort of this is some gymnastical words that people say because they want to belong to a tribe of people. Uh, yeah, and I think when when Rex is like, you know, so just give me the form and I'll sign it. Like that, that's just he's sincere in the sense that he's truthful. He's not trying to commit a fraud. It's just, you know, I don't. It's not like it's going to go down to the core of his heart and and change him. He, I don't think it occurs to him that religion could do that. That's not religion's function for him. But I don't think he's being deceitful. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Like he just. It kind of reminds me about the way. Do you ever like? hear a, a totally secular person try to explain someone's religious beliefs and you just right. think, oh that sounds so off like they just they don't get it right that's what i feel like about rex he just doesn't get it and so for him this is sincere like okay if i have to be catholic to marry a catholic i'll sign the form sure i mean you know and he's okay with so letting the, the kids be raised catholic too which you know so he, he's he's not anti it. It's not like he's being like, I'll convert to marry you, but secretly I'm going to be a Protestant in my heart. Like I just don't picture yeah. Rex as having a secret life. No, right? absolutely, absolutely. There is no secret hidden life below the surface. It's the crust. It's a pie, it's a pie with a crust, but there's no filling. Well, it is true that he can't even have an affair in secret. So. Um. <laughs> And doesn't want to. And even his affair is very sort of calculated, right? It's just, this is what you do mm -hmm. if you're going to get somewhere in life. Yeah. I, and it's, now it's time to get married. And this is what you do if you're going to get on in life. Can't have a mistress forever. Got to get a wife. Got to get kids. Got to get acceptability. Rex is very much on a life plan just as much as Julia is. But, um, well, he's, gosh, he can make more maybe, autonomous decisions than she can. Well, yes. Um, I, David, do you know why I think that you have a hard time believing that Rex is sincere? Is because you are a man that is the inverse of him. I'm nothing so on I the outside, but I'm deep on the inside. 
knew you were going to go there. All interior depth, nothing on the exterior. <laughs> Actually, you know what? David gets kind of G'd up. David looks good at the conferences. <laughs> right? He's well, got like this nice looking suit on. He's got a I nice totally looking tie. Agree. And he always has excellent shoes. There, I said it on the air. Cersei men have good shoe Guys, game. And you can me on that. Now, now I've got pressure. <laughs> Well, you listen. You just keep doing what you've been doing, and you'll relieve that pressure. Everybody, you know how to do it, David. Uh, this is great. Let's keep going. Um, but you, but you, I am actually, I'm really serious about that, David. You're, you're I really being sincere. <laughs> nice, nice catch. Um, I am sincere in asserting that you have a hard time acknowledging that Rex would be sincere because it's just. Like so antithetical, the like the depth with which you live your life. Well, I'm going to take that as a compliment, but do you not? That's exactly I, what it's intended. Do you, do you? I'm not may, sure how you be anything other than you're, a compliment. You're giving me. Well, my point is, you might be giving me too much credit. But the the you. But okay, help me out here. Do you agree or do you not agree that he is being manipulative? I, it depends what you mean by that. Yeah. We're going to have to He's get using the about faith, the word but, manipulative. But I think he is using the faith in a sense. But but Rex uses everything. I mean, for, for the modern man, everything is something to be used. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yes. I mean, it's, it's, he's a, a problem solver. He's using, he's using Julia, too, right? She's a, she's a solution. Yeah, he's a problem solver. So it depends what you mean by manipulate. There's a sense in which Rex is manipulating all of life. You know, it's interesting. Because everything's an opportunity for advancement for him. Mm. And so the religion helps solve the problem, which is what, you know, his treatment of religion as, a, as something to solve a problem or give, give, him an, give him an in into a society that he wants to be a part of is what makes his sense of paganism different than any other pagan, paganism that, that the missionaries had to deal with, as yeah, Father Mowbray said. Yeah, I that that was a profound line because true paganism has a virtue and an honor and something right. you can sort of make sense of, some, some hooks that you can then connect Christianity to. But the modern man, I mean, it's the hollow men. It's the men without chess. If, you mm -hmm. know, Elliot Lewis, they're all mm -hmm. saying the same things. And I think um, Father Mowbray is saying the same thing, too. Like, there's just nothing inside this man. He's not even a pagan. Like the, the the idea that the modern pagan is somehow a, a, a worse thing to be than you know like an ancient Greek pagan. Yes. Which which by the way, if I have a quibble thus far with the book, it is on this point. And if I have a well, we I mean we are about to launch into the deep. I get your, get your life jacket vest on. Get your life jacket vest on. It this complaint that many. Um, oh gosh, this complaint that the ancient pagan was somehow, um, kind of like had a depth that the modern, that the modern pagan has, I am pretty suspicious of that notion. I think that like the ancient pagan would be just as much surface as the modern pagan, um, yeah, I just I have a hard do you mean time to say, this critique. Do you mean to say that you think that they're both on the surface, so that the, that that we don't give the modern pagan enough credit for his depth? No, I think they're both. I think they're both on the surface. But I think there's this kind of fairy tale notion, and I use that word. I use the word fairy tale in this context in a derogatory way. There's a fairy tale notion that we 
that like kind of the ancient pagans were robust, depth filled, um, but just slightly confused. And I'm like, I have a feeling they were just as surfacey as Rex Martrum. They just had a different set of kind of surface convictions. Let's not even call them convictions. They wore the bumper stickers that Rex wears and seeks. Um, but they believed in Zeus and they believed in Juno, it, it, but they were just as shallow and um, acquisitive as Rex is. Hmm. So, so I, I, that is the, part the of you, we book. have launched into the depths. We have launched in the depths, and that's, <laughs> I'm taking off my life jacket and just going to ignore that, and we're going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to move on because I do think this is a complaint that I have about this book. That I do think it's a little bit. I I really, really respect this book. I think it is an absolutely sumptuous book. Um, but I do think it's a. I just don't know that I can fully buy the complaint about the modern man as somehow almost like, oh, how to describe it, as a, as a profound inferior to the ancient pagan. I just don't know that I buy that. Like, like hmm. Plutarch's description of Alcibiades, I mean, read it, read it sometime and tell me that Alcibiades is not Rex Martrum. But located in Greece, he is every bit the surface character. He's friends with Socrates. Socrates petitions him, begs him to look into his life, to have like some sense of his own soul. And Alcibiades does not care. He doesn't care at all. Do you, but, but okay, maybe the difference, I'm just throwing this out there for the sake of conversation. Maybe the difference is that Alcibiades makes the choice to reject that idea that to reject what Socrates is trying to tell him. Whereas Rex Motram is, is in a position because of the influences of, of the world around him and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, that he is to the point where he just is simply not capable of recognizing. It's the idea that, you know, the soul was too small for him to recognize it. Like his eyes were not open. So it's not even a choice thing. Whereas for Alcibiades, it is a choice thing. Right. That's a, that's a great counterproposal. And when I was making my case about Alcibiades using him as kind of like the, the mirror image of the pagan, of pagan Rex, mm-hmm. I was a little bit unfair. Alcibiades does kind of tiptoe near the idea that Socrates is right and then he moves away from it. So I was a little bit unfair in my representation of Alcibiades. Nonetheless, I do think there's something... Okay, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think that what Wa is doing here, and I would like Angelina to pit, you know, jump in on this too if she wants. Do you think that Wa is suggesting, as you put it, that the modern man is inferior in some way, or that the modern man is inflicted with a certain kind of illness, so to speak, that other times we're not, we're not afflicted with, and therefore had a, you know, there's a certain challenge based on that particular... Ooh. Illness. Can you say it one more time, David? So you said, is, is Wa suggesting that m- the modern man, the Rex Machum, just, you know, we'll use him as our example, yeah, yeah. Is, is actually an inferior being? You, you use some words like that, as opposed to just afflicted with a particular illness, so to speak, which had not been, the earlier, earlier right. people had not been plagued with. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that he's saying that, you know, Rex is uh, inherently worse than, than any of the pagan men. I, I don't... I, I mean, he I, is, I think, but... Well, <laughs> <laughs> I like kidding. the way you put it, though, that he's uh, he's afflicted with a peculiar illness, right, that that I, I think when you take the the line from Father Marbury about, you know, this is a this is a paganism unknown to missionaries, that that's the point. This is a new illness. This is a new affliction of the soul, and and we don't even know how to relate to it. The, the priest doesn't know how to fix Rex. He's just at his wit's end, right? I don't know what to do about this guy. I mean, they should have gotten a younger priest, he said, because I'm going to die before I convert Rex. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> another great line. Um well, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't read it quite that way, that it was an attack on modern man and saying that ancient man was somehow superior. More more just like, this is something we have not encountered before. What is wrong with this man? Hmm. And, and I, I take don't... that line, I take the line, um, what is the line again? Uh, he doesn't, Marchman, he yeah. doesn't correspond to any degree of paganism known to the missionaries. I think it's a beautiful, wonderful poignant and humorous line and i think that's the precise point with which i have a quibble with wall yes I'm, I'm willing to concede that you know throughout history there have always been you know sort of superficial selfish self-seeking people um you know i guess i'm looking at it more in generalities modern man has definitely rejected certain truths about human nature that the ancients did not reject and i for so for me that's a big watershed moment um one which makes modern man an entirely different kind of animal the the idea of natural piety i think is kind of where that hinges on like he's sort of saying mushroom doesn't have there's no piety there's no sense of that ingrained within him at all like there's been no he's been not he's not been brought up in any tradition that had, that's allowed it to be um kind of a part of who he is even if he sort of rejects it or doesn't buy into it completely at least if the seed has been planted you can turn it into something well exactly so paul stands on mars hill right and he points to the altar of the unknown god and he says so let me tell you who it is you've been worshiping you can't have that conversation with rex motrum he, hmm. he hasn't been worshiping anything himself he would yeah counter proposal <laughs> um <laughs> plato's euthyphro is all about religion all about religion Socrates is discussing um, with Euthyphro whether or not Euthyphro should go and sue his own father. And Socrates' appeal to Euthyphro is basically like, wouldn't this be a gross offense to natural, natural piety? Euthyphro, who I think, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, well, I know this at least, Euthyphro is a, quote, devout and, quote, sincere um, religionist of the pagan mold. And what Socrates is appealing to makes zero sense to him. I, Euthyphro, to me, is another example of a Rex character. He is completely on the surface, and there's nothing deeper in him, even though he most certainly believes in the gods. He most certainly believes in kind of like um, some form of pagan virtue, Am I appealing? Am I appealing to books that are kind of like a little bit unfresh for you guys? And so it's kind of 
it's it's hard to have a it's hard if you've not read the Euthyphro recently or Plutarch's Alcibiades to kind yeah. of get it's a little bit unfair. Yeah. I'm, I was, I was okay. not prepared to have this conversation. Yeah, yeah, chair. yeah. Sorry, it's a little bit. It's a little bit unfair. Um, but it's part of the reason that I have the conviction that I think that Waugh is is making the kind of surfacey um, nature of modern man into a little bit of a straw man that I don't think really stands a close reading of of history. That's my complaint. But if that's what you think about what he's saying about modern man, then the book falls fat completely. Cause that's what the whole book's about. I mean, that's what Sebastian and Charles is. That's the constant struggle. I mean, it's, isn't it? I, I don't think, think so. that the book, I do think that's what the book is about. I don't think that's that the book falls apart completely though. I just think that was being a little bit, um, oh, you're just saying he's being a little harsh. Uh, yeah. He's being harsh. He's being harsh, but I think that his complaint about modern man is a complaint that he could make um, in 300 BC just as easily he could make it in 1925. He probably, I suspect he would agree with it. I think that's where it comes down to the the particular nature of the particular malady, and maybe Matram, you know, is only a small portion of that. Like he's an, he's an example of a certain kind of person, just like Sebastian and Julia and Charles are each examples of their own sorts of people too. And like Lady Marchmain is and so forth. Like every character to a certain extent, no matter how complex is still sort of molded out of an archetype. Right. Yeah. I, do you think he would say that David, do you think that wall would say, yeah, I agree with what Tim just said. I'm, I'm suspicious that he would say, uh, I don't know, okay. Tim. We're dealing with a different kind of the modern world creates a different sort of animal. Well, I think he probably would say that. I think, but I don't. And I would totally, I would clink his uh, yeah. glass and a cheers for that for saying that. And then I would have the butler remove you from the premises because you're really ruining our cocktail party. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I don't see, I don't see how you could possibly say that any that every generation or every you know epoch or whatever doesn't produce its own kind of people. I mean, that's. That's like, um, that doesn't make any sense to me. That that, right, right. Um, I mean, yeah, I was saying the same thing as Elliot and Lewis, right? Hollow men, men without chess. But you're saying there have always been men without chess. Um, I think my my argument would be, man, we are going to get well, into the deep no, waters. So, hold on, hold on. Is your, <laughs> is your are you saying something about, um, his appeal to? That, that the past, like that, that, that the past is somehow um, better than the present or whatever his present was. That that he is appealing to that to a degree that makes it overstated. Yes. That the comparison between that that the comparison between the past and the present is is um is like is is too dramatically uh, yes. drawn. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And that that sense of conflict is not necessary. The, 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 the stuff going on with the characters still works, but that there's not any, something inherently better about the past than there is about the present, or his present anyway. I, th- I think that he thinks that. Yeah, there's something inherently better about the past than there is about the present. That, that, that particular way of putting it, I think, is something I'm going to have to think about. Who does he think that? I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah, as you're talking, I keep thinking, well, it depends what you mean by. I mean, we yeah. have to really hammer out all of our, I, all of our definitions I, here. Let's, let's see if we can find a point of agreement. Do we agree that what's going on here, at least, is that these characters um, and, and the world that they live in is stuck 
in this state of flux. Like it's it's in between. Yeah. It is at a turning point that is causing turmoil and conflict, both within the world they live in, but also within each of them as characters, and then within their relationships. That all that leads to that to that kind of that inner turmoil that makes them confused and leads to despair and all that sort of thing. Yes. Okay, so that's the that's the point we agree on that I think we can yeah. continue on. But I think this on. is also worth saying too is that I, I I mean yeah there was that line about paganism but on mm-hmm. the whole I really thought that Waugh is much more contrasting the medieval sensibility and the modern sensibility than he is trying to say something about the ancients and so when you when you're talking about the medieval world versus the the modern world I don't romanticize as much as I love the medievals I don't romanticize them that they are fundamentally different human beings who mm-hmm. are just you know love truth beauty and goodness right out of the womb mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but but I do think with modern man you're talking about a, a, a culture and a world that has deliberately turned its back on its Christianity right so it's it's unmoored itself from reality on purpose. And we're dealing with the with. I mean, it looks like somebody just blew up the world, and we're standing in the rubble. And we don't know. We're looking around at the rubble, going, "There's a lot of rubble here, and we don't know what to do." And so, for me, that's what the book is about. It's about people who are living in the world that was just—they're living amidst the rubble. Yeah, and and it's not just the literal rubble of the aftermath of the war, but the literal—you know—the the rubble, the, the metaphorical rubble. Of, of the Enlightenment and, and, and the Enlightenment optimism that led to World War One and all of the things that blew up in our faces that man cannot achieve perfectibility. We're not going to have heaven on earth. Uh, we can't reason our way out of every possible problem and solution. Man, I always say that op- optimism leads to nothing but despair. <laughs> <laughs> Damon, was that a quote? No, I no, I just made it up. <laughs> oh. Zing! That was good. That you was said good. it with a you said it with a tone that made it sound like you had like taken that from a famous book or something like that. I mean, I don't know, maybe, but I I don't recall <laughs> reading it in a famous book or something. <laughs> our our so listeners will have I, to. I don't, but but I don't fundamentally yeah. disagree with Tim. I would absolutely agree that there have been you know people going through the motions of piety and. And being superficial and, and, and having manipulative means, I mean, and, and goals. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't think human beings are a different sort of animal than they were 2,000 years ago. But I think you're dealing with people who are suffering from having deliberately cut themselves off from reality and trying to recreate reality in a way that, that the medieval and the ancient man would not have tried. Like, they would have always understood who they are as human beings in relation to something else whereas mm. moderns we, we are and this is why rex is such a good portrait of that because rex is a self-made man and modernity mm. is all about being a self-made man in every way i mean we are taking it to the most ludicrous extremes right now if you can say what you know you can decide what race you are what gender you are you know i'm a car because we are the self-made men we can define ourselves What's interesting is that the only way, what Rex puts on display, I suppose, is that the only way to, to be the truly successful self-made man is to buy your way or push your way into already created constructs. Yeah. Like, to be truly successful, yeah. he has to push his way into the world of the March Mains and, you know, this upper, this upper class. Like, that's what's, he, I mean, maybe it's a matter of he thinks that's going to fulfill him, and maybe he really does love her. But, you know, to truly be successful, you know, he has to push his way into something that already exists. But hey, on another note, uh, you mentioned something about recreating reality. Um, I just got a quick telegram from Graham. 
<laughs> oh, what's Graham have to yeah, say? So he just wants me to thank you, Angelina, for the wonderful baby shower gift. Those the the noise oh, canceling. Angelina. Yeah, it was really sweet because he she sent over noise canceling headphones that actually fit a baby. So they oh. they fit baby Ella really nice and snug, and so baby Ella's finally getting some good sleep. So he thanks you. He says that was very proactive of you, Angelina. Very, I do what I can. Yeah, yeah. Those are really expensive too. So yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get them that small. The problem is she'll grow out of them so fast. You'll have to get another pair. I didn't think through that well. <laughs> that was um, really thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we've been going on um, almost an hour, so let's. That doesn't count our rest, our previous stuff before the tech problems. It's like a a t p and b t p. Um, let's. You know, but uh, but I do like what you said about that he's using the tradition like the way to be a self-made man is to use the traditions because it doesn't work you know he he has this plan of how he's going to navigate the catholic church's tradition but they get him and he can't figure out a way around it in the end the mm. fact that he was already married mm-hmm. you know one of the la- the lines that stands out to me the the way while or charles describes Matram is he says he was masterly in his treatment of her and he's referring to the way that he interacts with Lady Marchmain because and that's where that you know it, it that's where I get this I this this real sense that he's being manipulative and he's using everybody and he's just you know there's something for his own aims here it's masterly in his treatment of her because that yeah. is not the kind of line you write when you want someone to, when you want to feel like there's genuine affection going on there right <laughs> no that's true you know, he says he was masterly in his treatment of her. And then Rex says, I don't pretend to be a very devout man. Yeah, no kidding. Nor much of a theologian. Again, no kidding. But I know it's a bad plan to have two religions in one house. So that's like, it's practical. It's practicality, Pragmatic, right? Yep. A man needs a religion. If your church is good enough for Julia, it's good enough for me. And that's where you get... And then she says, very well, I will see about having you instructed. And then he says, look, Lady Marchman. And it's... He doesn't say, you know... It's, that's not a thing you say when you're trying to be kind and gentle again, right? He says, look, <laughs> Lady Marchman, I haven't the time. It's, this is, you know, it's like he's talking to an employee. Instruction will be wasted on me. Just you give me the form and I'll sign on the dotted line. And then she says, it usually takes months, often a lifetime. And he says, well, I'm a quick learner. Try me. <laughs> and, and then he meets with Mabre and Mabre is... You know, what's I don't know what the word what what does it say? He's uh he run, he he refers to him as an obdurate catechumen. Um, to Rex that way. Um, but he 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 knows how to manipulate the the situations. He knows how to you know get what he wants. He's he's pushy and bold and um you know he's the same way with Julia. So which leads me to my one of the questions I asked at the beginning that I'd like to get your thoughts on. Why is she attracted to, to Rex? Mm-hmm. There is obvious reasons, and then there are the not obvious reasons. Obviously, he is all—he's very much surface. So, what are the surface reasons that it seems like he—that she's attracted to him, like that, that she's drawn to him? His age and his money and his prestige, I suppose, are 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 there. Wall gives a handful of answers. Um, it, I, I found them strangely um, sympathetic. I. I mm-hmm. Before yeah, and Angelina that used that word earlier too. Sorry, go ahead. 
You guys there? Hello? Hey, we're here. Tim, you there? Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Sympathetic. Sympathetic. Um, the reasons that Waugh gives, I found myself strangely sympathetic for. At the beginning of the chapter, I thought, how in the world did Julia and Rex get together? And then I finished reading the chapter, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I can believe that. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they were both after... They were both looking for something that fit a role that they wanted to play in their lives. Hmm. Each of them was looking for the other to fit a role, and they found each other in that. It kind of makes practical sense. There doesn't seem to be anything deeper than the practical sense that led towards some feelings of romance. Well, I think, too, what he says about that Rex slowly becomes indispensable to her. It was interesting. He doesn't try to make love to her, which in these kinds of books means woo her. Um, mm -hmm. He just makes himself indispensable, which is a strategy that I have actually found other men use. <laughs> but, but I can actually understand why that would have worked for Julie. I mean, she's got an absent father. And then mm -hmm. so and Rex would have been there. And we saw earlier that, you know, who do, who do we turn to when we need to get Sebastian out of trouble? Rex. Rex is on the spot. Rex gets things done. He knows how to navigate the world. I can totally see why that would be someone who would seem comforting to her. Like this mm. is a man who's always going to be here. He's going to get. You know, we can rely. The whole family relies on Rex. You know, they kind of hold their nose while they're doing it, but he he's useful. And and mm. and again, it's interesting how Was setting it all up because the world of the March mains is disappearing. And so they really don't know how to navigate the world. And Rex does in a, you know, in a sense, of course, we, we see that there's a whole bunch of different layers going on there, but I can, I can see how, how Julia thinking of herself as a modern woman would have been very attracted to that. But then I also can see how she very quickly would have realized what a mistake she made, hmm. which she does, which she does most definitely. Do you think he is really attracted to her? I don't know what the deal is with that. Maybe, maybe we'll he, find out more. He goes back to the mistress awfully fast and says, well, what'd you expect me to do? Uh, so yeah. it's hard to believe there's any kind of real sentiment there, but Rex may not be capable of anything real. Yeah. Yeah. Does he find her attractive? It's like, well, what does attractive mean? I mean, your your dad was so right. It's everything in this book is perspectives. Everything in this book is perspectives. That's really interesting that you say, you know, we never get much of an expression of him either A, expressing affection or A, expressing or B, expressing why he's attracted to her. Like, he doesn't say that. Whereas we get contrasted with that as Charles beginning the chapter by talking about how how magnetic she is and how beautiful she is. And like he compares it to fairy tale characters and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so he, you, Charles has this real sense of attraction to her and he's, he's expressing that, but Rex never does say that. And in fact, you mentioned that he, maybe he's not capable of feeling like he doesn't seem to be able to feel how other people are feeling mm -hmm. because there's not a lot of empathy there because like, even when she, when Julia, threatens to not marry him because he goes back to the mistress and he's like well what was i supposed to do you know you, you know 
you're making this take too long. What am, what am I supposed to do? And he's just like, it's pragmatism. It's this, you know, the specific, you have a specific desire, a specific whatever. There's a way to solve it. Yeah, Rex is looking for a wife. It makes sense, given everything we know about who Rex is, that he would have picked the number one debutante that year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Rex wants the best. Julia right. is the best. And he's a lot like her father. So she, you know, she she probably has some sort of like daddy issues that are leading leading to that which oh, i don't definitely. I, I don't mean to oversimplify that as much as it sounded we just don't have a lot of time to no, talk no, about it at the, right now oh it's yeah. absolutely true it's absolutely one of the things true. about the this book that's so compelling is that um it really does open the door to all sorts of kind of like psychological oh how do i say it um it's very psychologically suggestive. You can see the effects of like parental relationships on all of these characters, hmm. all these characters, mm-hmm. maybe with the exception of Lady March, maybe we don't get mm-hmm. a lot about her, like, you know, like mother and father, but the effect that she has on her sons and daughters, it's, it's ripe for the, for, for, um, theorizing on a, on a psychological level. Hmm. Well, that's as good a place as I need to stop. We need oh, to. Uh, can we read the last the last paragraph though? Well, I was when, just when, I was okay. just going to say final thoughts. <laughs> I just I I not getting into too much. I just strongly related to Julia in this in this uh, chapter and to see her being How so, Angelina. Uh, well, I don't want, just making a horrible choice in a husband, but also as you go through mm. the steps with her feeling like, of course, that, this was an inevitable choice for her because yeah. this is kind of how, how this is just how she is in this situation. And of course, her eyes are going to be open to it later and she's and she's going to regret it. And and also I strongly related from my own life experience to the idea that you um, misinterpret someone's surface for thinking there's this depth underneath and being really shocked to discover that that's not true because you project yeah. your when you have depth you project it onto other people at least i do uh, it's not my default when i meet somebody that you're probably just an automaton and have nothing going on inside like that you know <laughs> that's not how i approach people i'm always like trying to dig through and like oh you're a mystery let me dig through and find out what mystery you are so I actually relate to that about charles too you I, don't have like this robotic radar that like can go you are shallow <laughs> ding 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 nobody home yeah so i don't have to avoid talk to you, so. avoid avoid <laughs> danger will robinson danger i like what you're saying though because one one thing I, I love about this last little paragraph here is speaking of depth that it reveals for us as readers as it does most of this chapter but particularly this this paragraph it reveals the depth that julia has within her because yes. one thing you'll notice that it's not na- the narrator is not saying this. This is this is her dialogue. This is coming from her, and that she she is capable of speaking eloquently, of of humor, of of empathy, of sympathy, like all these things we kind of already knew kind of come into focus in this one paragraph and prepare us for, you know, the future, um, mm. the rest of the book. So yeah, please go ahead and read that. You know, Father Marbury hit on the truth about Rex at once, that it took me a year of marriage to see. He simply wasn't all there. He wasn't a complete human being at all. He was a tiny bit of one, unnaturally developed. Something in a bottle, an organ kept alive at a laboratory. 
I thought he was a sort of primitive savage, but he was something absolutely modern and up-to-date that only this ghastly age could produce. A tiny bit of a man pretending he was the whole. Hmm. And the very last sentence is a wonderful foreshadowing for what so will good. happen. Yes. Yeah. It was 10 years later that she said this to me in a storm in the Atlantic. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Really so good. Yeah. So it's like subtle but also great craftsmanship yeah very much so so you get the plot right that she's married rex and now she's not married to rex but you get so much more than that because I, I, we haven't known who julia was this whole time and I, right. I, at least i feel like i know her much better and like you said we we julia on the surface looks like she could be you know the female version of rex she's modern mm. and up to date and, and and looking to to cast off some of these family traditions but not fully uh, and then yet we see at the end that she's not at all like Rex. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that that is a good place to stop. Um, thank you for, for another great conversation, y'all. Well, thank you. Thank you, David. And keep dressing spiffily. <laughs> okay. Um, you want to um, you want to contribute to my um, spiffy dress fund? Which is not yeah, that I'm going to be wearing a spiffy dress. It's that I, you know, need more I money. I need to... a spiffy dress. If people want to donate, let's start doing a spiffy dress. I need a new banquet ensemble. The spiffy dress fund. Um, Tim, you want us? You want some money for your spiffy dress too? I do. Let's <laughs> let's put it all in the pot together. Hey, speaking of of money that we're going to be is going to be donated, I wanted to say a quick make a quick comment because a really good friend of ours here at Cersei, uh, her name is Rachel McClure. She's a former student of mine actually, and a mentee of my dad's and my mom's, and she is um, joining my sister Katie uh, in Uganda in about two weeks. Um, she's going to be teaching with the Amazama uh, Ministries. It's a it's a missionary teacher. It's a they're teacher missionaries for students and kids in Uganda. It was started by um, Katie Davis, who wrote Kisses for Katie, if you're familiar with that book. And my sister is there teaching um, upper school to these to these Ugandan children who have been um, sort of semi-adopted. What happens is the, the families are so poor that they bring their children, you know, they give up their children for adoption uh, because they can't feed them or school them or, or anything. And, you know, so it's really sad. And so this ministry comes in and they say, if we can feed and school, you know, feed and educate and clothe your children, will you keep them? You know, it becomes a boarding school. And, and the families all say, yes, of course. So this ministry is there to do that. So Rachel is going to go over there um, and join my sister there teaching. My sister's going to teach for one more year and she's kind of going to, you know, uh, pass that on to Rachel after a year. So then Rachel will be there for a few more years. And, you know, they prepare these, these young African boys and girls to, to go back into their Ugandan communities and take their education and what they've learned and hopefully, you know, do some good with that in their community. So it's not like they're being trained to move elsewhere, but they're actually, you know, trying to contribute to these communities. And what we're trying to do is help Rachel raise some money. She needs to raise $2,000 a month to be able to kind of live there as a missionary for, for, for the first two years. And so she's raised a little over a thousand, I think something like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars a month. And what we want to do is we want to match up to two hundred and fifty dollars a month. So we're looking for some people to help us do that. So if if you know if our listeners could help 
could help do that over the next couple of weeks, help you get that up to $250 a month. If you can get $5 a month even, that would be great. And we'll match that. So we're going to give $250 a month. Um, and we're just hoping that, you know, you can partner with us in that. This is a really cool, they're teaching classically. It's a classical uh, basis in their program. There's a former classical school headmaster that's there leading the school that Amazimo is associated with. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking for some missionaries to support, this is a, this is a cool opportunity. If you want to learn more, we have some notes on our Facebook page. And then you can also just head over to the donation page on our site. And there's a little drop down there where you can choose, instead of choosing like a Cersei donation fund or whatever, you can choose the Amazima fund and we will, you know, you donate that money and then we will subsequently write a check, you know, over to them. Or I, I guess it won't be a check. We'll probably come out of our, of our bank account every month. But if you're interested in partnering with that, we would certainly appreciate that. And, um, I know that, that those missionaries over there would as well, and they're doing really great work. So, let's support them. Yeah. So, so if you can, if you can join that, you know, we know there's a lot of things to give to give to, but they're doing some really great mission work over in Uganda, in one of the poorest countries in Africa. So, mm. um, anyway, that's that's that. Speaking of donations, don't donate to our clothing fund. I mean, you know, donate to the Amazama <laughs> the Amazama yeah, missionaries fund. Worthwhile. Um, and then also, I just want to say we are planning to do a live recording on Thursday night of the conference um, in in Louisville. So, I mean, in, in uh, Austin, not Louisville, uh, in Austin, Texas, and we'll probably still be on Brideshead. So, if you want to come and if you're going to be at the conference, come Thursday night and join us. Uh, we'll do a live recording of the podcast, and you can see what it looks like when we're actually laughing at each other. Um, and hopefully we won't have as many tech problems. <laughs> so, all right. Well, any final thoughts from either of you? <clears throat> no, no. None from me either. All right. Great chapter. Well, yeah, absolutely. Then for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. We look forward to talking to you next week on Close Reads. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.